Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Vivi Ganeshananthan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Love Marriage. So how's your 401k? We don't we don't talk about the 401k. I'm, I'm afraid to look. <laughs> it's really weird. I mean, we have never once in our relationship talked about retirement funds or your retirement fund or mine, even though we both work at universities that provide at least a minimum matching funds for the 401k, because writers don't like to talk about money, or at least they don't like to talk about their own money. Also, they, they think that they're going to work until they're, they just die. <laughs> well, <laughs> you can, kind of, you know, until your brain goes. Um, all right. So, but, but look, but writing is a totally capitalist profession. You know, so why do it's like one of the most, you know, capitalist professions that could possibly exist on the face of the earth. And so I wonder why there is that kind of reluctance. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. So when exactly did writing literary fiction become a huge capitalist enterprise? Are you raking it in and you're just not talking about it? Would you go along with Jonathan Franzen and refuse to be part of Oprah's book club if she came and called to want to have your novel on? Would you? No. I mean, because look, being a writer is like being a, a professional golfer. It's the most, even, you know, like lawyers, you know, like you've got a firm, you, you know, like you, or, you know, but, but like you're a totally independent operator. If you write stuff that sells, you get to write another thing. If you don't, you eventually don't get to write stuff anymore. There's no support network at all. And this is why writers don't talk about money. Because <laughs> it's too depressing. The first rule of Writer Money Club is don't talk about Writer Money Club. <laughs> But today we're going to break that rule and talk exclusively about money and specifically booms. Will there be a Biden boom? Do different kinds of books get published during booms? Later in the episode, we'll talk to the author of Gold Diggers, Sanjana Sathian, about the sort of literature we see during economic booms, as well as how Americans imagine wealth, ambition, and luck. But first, we're going to talk to Carolyn Binock. Carolyn is a PhD candidate at Duke University and studies the intersection of fiction and economics. Her dissertation traces economic thought in both novels and economics departments of the late 19th and early 20th century United States. She holds a master's degree in North American studies with concentrations in literature and economics from the Free University of Berlin and is the author of numerous articles on the intersection of economics and literature, including Economists Are More Like Storytellers Than Scientists, Don't Let the Nobel for Economic Sciences Fool You, which was published in Commentary. Carolyn, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you so much. It's very nice to have you. Um, when I read your piece comparing ec- economists to novelists, I felt like I was discovering someone who absolutely had to be on this podcast. Um, economics, of course, it shares more with fiction writing than with science. That seems obvious to me, <laughs> but I don't think a lot of other people feel that way. Your article that Sugi mentioned uh, on storytelling and economics came out in October of 2020, but seems totally relevant to the economic storytelling that's going on right now in the first term of the Biden administration. Could you read to us from that piece just to set things up? Um, Sure. So, I mean, I uh, wrote this piece in October, um, you know, in the lead up to the Nobel Prize announcements. Um, But kind of just the two, the two arguments I'm making are one that economics relies um, very heavily on fiction. And I don't mean that in the sense of it's mere fiction. I mean that fiction is a very, like has very real impact on how people imagine the world. and secondly, that paradoxically, economics has um, uh, has used 
that very mechanism of fiction to make itself look like more like the hard sciences, when in fact it is a social science, and I think that distinction is important. Uh, okay, let me read. The notion that economics shares a lot with fiction may seem counterintuitive. That feeling is not incidental. Ever since the inception of economics in the late 1800s, economists have sought to associate their discipline with the very opposite of fiction, the natural sciences. Unlike economics, which deals with human relationships, the hard sciences study phenomena in the natural world. As such, a claim by a natural scientist reflects a different kind of truth than one by an economist. For example, the law of gravity describes an immutable physical fact. The law of supply and demand describes a relationship between people. What we know now as mainstream economics began with the concept of marginal utility, which posits that individuals make purchases by considering how much happiness they will derive from each additional unit of a good or service. What attracted many economists to the concept was that it provided a way to make economics more mathematical. The concept of marginal utility allowed economists to turn sensations into quantities. Happiness, or satisfaction, or utility, was imagined as a pile of many little units of pleasure, which some economists actually believed could be physically measured. Francis Edward, for example, conceived of a psychophysical machine, as he called it, to do precisely that in his beautifully titled book, Mathematical Psychics. That is to say, in the 19th century, the resemblance of economics to the natural sciences fooled even some of its own practitioners. Economic theory, the stuff that makes economists look at the numbers the way they do, is an endeavor that fundamentally relies on our understanding of fiction. Literary scholar Catherine Gallagher has argued that this understanding, at least in the Anglo-Saxon world, was shaped by a relatively new genre in the 18th century, the novel. Readers previously thought of fiction as clearly marked fantastic th stories, think flying carpets and talking animals, and perceived stories that appeared plausible enough but that they could have happened as lies. Novels shifted that perception. We can now read a realist novel and at once know that the story did not actually happen and put that knowledge on hold to follow along. Models of economic theory require the same suspension of disbelief. We know that there is no per world with perfect competition, as one famous economic theory asserts. So we're asked to set aside the criteria we would usually apply to understand something as objectively real to follow the story the theory and economist tells about the economy. In other words, with the novel first teaching us how to deal with worlds that are not technically true but still believable, theoretical models might not exist in the way they do today. This reliance on our attitude toward fiction is not exclusive to the models used in economics. The same could be said about, for example, the idea of a perfect vacuum in physics. We know there is no perfectly empty space, yet we can imagine it. Where economics becomes more fictional than other academic discipline is in the content of its theories, specifically in one of its most fundamental assumptions, opportunity cost. According to economic textbooks, individuals make choices by considering how much happiness they derive from different options. Say, I have an hour I could use to either buy groceries, catch up with a friend, or take a nap. Um, I assess my options and find that grocery shopping is not that important right now. 
Seeing my friend would be nice, but napping really promises the largest amount of happiness. Consequently, I choose to nap, but the price I pay for my nap is the happiness I would have derived from my second best option, spending time with my friend. Note that the second best option did not and will not occur, and the individual in the story knows this as she is imagining her options. In other words, fiction occupies a very prominent position in the opportunity cost story and by extension in economics at large. Each decision we make, economists are saying, is accompanied by a piece of fiction. Economists today are aware that their discipline is a social science rather than the study of physical laws of nature. Yet, they are unlikely to object to the prestige that comes along with a lingering perception of economics as a hard science. I believe the Nobel Memorial Prize in Economic Sciences, uh, announced on October 12th, is an example of this prestige production. If the other research-based Nobel Prizes go to physicists, chemists, and medical scientists, economists must have the same claim to being a scientist, right? Recognizing instead that economics shares a lot with literature, another Nobel category, helps us because it loosens the perception of the discipline as a hard science that tells us facts of nature. Understanding economists' comments and predictions this way also gives all of us more agency to decide whether or not a given story seems credible. Thank you. I really love that napping hypothetical, (laughs) one to which I suspect everyone can relate. Um, we were going to call this show What Happens in the Biden Boom because 10 days ago, the story from Economist was that the economy was set for a huge boom as businesses were set to reopen, virus numbers were dropping in the U.S., and Biden's first stimulus bill was hitting people's pocketbooks. And then on Friday, May 7th, about a week ago, we're recording on Friday, May 14th, we got a whole new story. And the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics reported that non-farm payroll employment rose by 266,000 in April, which is way less than the million new jobs that economists were predicting. Suddenly, everyone was talking about lazy workers and predicting recession. Uh, I feel like I've even seen this floating around social media, the kind of notion that people, you know, you can't find workers. It's too difficult. I know you critique the stories that economists tell, but to start off, can we just sort of establish what their story is and why it changed so quickly? So I'm going to give you like the kind of stuff you would learn maybe in a uh, in an economics class, but like a lot of that. Uh, Good, because I dropped into... mine in college. <laughs> <laughs> maybe because people didn't tell you enough um, that they're actually telling stories. and I would have been much more interested. What we were doing was very boring. <laughs> I have TA'd in economics before, and I always made it very clear that I'm coming to this from a literary perspective um, because I think it makes more people interested in economics and more more people who maybe normally wouldn't study economics, which as we know, economics has a huge diversity problem, um, I think might be induced to take a look at it if we didn't just, if we highlighted a little more the storytelling aspect. Yeah, I think Bernanke and Yellen could like use some time in workshop. Maybe we could go over their <laughs> things and see what other people have to say. They could listen to comments before they, when they decide something that they're going to say something about the economy. They think about it a lot, but yes, they definitely need some uh, novelists on their staff. <laughs> um, oh, but, but back to the question. Um, you know, what are the narratives that kind of are behind first, like the idea that, oh, yay, here's the stimulus. Now we're going to have a Biden boom. And then a week later, everything changed. Um, 
So on the one hand, economists kind of like it when uh, money goes to people who don't have a lot of money um, to some degree, <laughs> because the idea is if you're someone who really is living hand to mouth and you're having trouble putting money on the t uh, putting food on the table, any dollar that the government gives you will be spent. And so it's a very direct kind of um, payment to to the American economy, kind of if you give it to people who don't have the capacity to save. Um, but then there's the other story. Um, or th the idea is that once you have that kind of consumption increase, because people are paying and people are buying more things, you will also, that's, a, that's kind of a subsidy for businesses as well, and they will start hiring more workers. Now, here's where we get into the second story, the kind of competing story, which is if you give pretty high unemployment benefits, workers will be less induced or the recipients of these benefits will have less of an incentive to go back to work. Because if you're a rational recipient of, um, of an unemployment benefits and you get, say, $600 a week, why would you go to a job that pays $12 an hour where with 40 hours a week, uh, you'd be getting $480. So, you know, and we're talking very low wage here. But here's the part where I start getting angry about that part, because I feel like the entire point of, well, we're going to get to this later, but the point is for wages to go up. They should go up. They need to go up, right? They have stayed the same, and particularly in service in industry jobs, for a long time. And we refuse to raise the minimum wage. And then suddenly when wages go up, everyone's like, oh, my God. I mean, we will talk more about yeah, this. Okay. Um, I got excited there. I'm sorry. I, I get very excited about this too. I try. I try to not show it too much, but yes, <laughs> um, there is a different way you could tell that very same story, right? About um, unemployment benefits being up, which is this is a story that usually the proponents of like a universal basic income would be telling, which is, well, if unemployment is high, and when we're saying high, we just mean like basic human dignity is insured in the amount of money someone makes. Um, so if unemployment is high, companies have to compete for workers, and that means that wages will rise. So, which is exactly what we're seeing, that very same job report had like showed a 21 cent increase, um, which doesn't sound like that much, but it's on average. And we are, I, I suspect that we're going to see even more of a raise in wages in the low wage sector. So following the bad jobs number, which was so bad that Biden gave a national address about it, the Consumer Price Index hit a 13-year high in a report that was released uh, yesterday, May 13th, and the stock market tanked. Why do economists in the stock market fear inflation so much? And why would the stock market tank when high inflation is actually a marker that the economy is running hot? So, I mean, inflation just means the purchasing power of your money goes down the same dollar that you have today buys you a little less than the dollar you had yesterday. That's um, the basic uh, definition. And um, because of that, we can already see that economists wouldn't really want that, especially if you just, um, if, say, if you're a government economist and you just uh, put $1.9 trillion into the economy. Wow, okay, those $1.9 trillion are now worth a lot less because you put it into the economy, right? Um But really, you know, macroeconomists especially have been worried about inflation since the 1970s, um, when we saw kind of the 
bust of another very famous, like within economics, a very famous uh, story, which is the story of the Phillips curve. Um, the Phillips curve basically said that there is an inverse relationship between unemployment and inflation, meaning if inflation is high, we can expect unemployment to be low. This was basically just a correlation that an economist, um, A.W. Phillips, found in some of the historical data he was looking at. But the Fed especially thought they could use that as a kind of tool. They could be like, yeah, we can you know, crank up inflation if uh, unemployment doesn't look so good. In the 1970s, we came to a period, like to a recession that then where we saw both high unemployment and high inflation and that left monetary policy with very little to do. So um, really the reason that economists don't like in high inflation is that they're worried that really then on a monetary policy level, they can't really do much about it. Now, I have to qualify this a little bit by saying that the the Fed can't directly manipulate inflation. What the Fed can do is set the interest rate, or at least one interest rate that is very influential, and they have been setting it very low. Now, the thing is, stock markets usually love low interest rates because a low interest rate means money is cheap and more people can invest. Great for the stock market. But um, basically, we've been kind of in this experiment this past decade where interest rates have been extremely low and we've been kind of trying to see okay how for how long can we keep interest rates really low and basically stimulate investment um, without seeing inflation rise significantly and so that's really kind of the paradox of the stock market the very thing that they like which is um, low interest rates can cause the thing that they don't like which is inflation And low interest rates have other consequences, like you have to invest in the stock market if there's low interest rates because you can't buy a CD or something safer, right? Because you don't get any return on your investment. And normally during periods of economic prosperity, the the Fed's supposed to bring the interest rate up so that they can drop it if something bad happens. We're kind of stuck here. If anything bad happens, we're screwed is what it feels like to me. Anyway, all right. So we've asked you to do all the, to speak in the voice of the economist telling us what they think, which is not exactly what you think, I don't think. And it's certainly not what I think. So now we're going to do the critique part. Um, And we want to start by deconstructing this story that I heard on CNBC show Fast Money um, on May 12th. This is an exchange between one of the regular panelists, Guy Adami, and Bank of America's head of U.S. equity and quantitative strategy, Savita Subramanian. Savita, 8 million, 9 million job openings out there. Seemingly employers can't get people in those jobs, but they will if they start to raise pay, right? And we saw it anecdotally with Chipotle said they're going to raise their minimum wage to $15. Is the market going to raise minimum wage for the politicians? And is that the final piece of the inflation puzzle, wage inflation? Oh, absolutely. So this is a key reason that we downgraded consumer discretionary, the sector, to an underweight um, about a week and a half ago. It's the idea that you know, the companies that are most impacted by minimum wage inflation are actually, you know, a lot of these services companies, a lot of these retailers, um, and that's where you're going to see the margin compression. This is sort of a typical mid-cycle type of market where you start to see rate upward pressure on rates, on commodity prices, on wages. But I do think that we as investors should avoid some of the stocks that have chronically seen 
margin pressure coming uh, coming into you know a wage inflationary environment. So I would avoid consumer discretionary stocks. Those are the, the primary culprit. The the sales to labor ratio for those companies is the lowest that we've seen across all sectors. So that's one casualty of uh, of wage inflation. Wow. Um... I mean, first off, the language is so obviously designed to not be... Um, to not say, hey, stop buying these companies because wages are going to go up and, 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 and rich people will have a harder time making money this way, is, what it's, is how I read that. That's absolutely correct. Uh, but it shows you how powerful uh, language is that makes it really hard to penetrate. The thing about what Adami says is, could we potentially have wage inflation, by which I think he means wage push inflation, which... That actually, it doesn't mean is the wage itself inflated, but it means does wage, uh, do higher wages cause inflation because it would put more money into the hands of uh, people who don't have a lot of money who would then spend it. I actually think that is a valid concern because, um, but it's because I think of the story told here differently. I think of the story as like the main protagonist, the, the protagonist being the low-wage worker. And I would actually be very concerned if there's inflation um, because of rising wages, because it would uh, devalue that very rise in wages we've just seen, right? Uh, if your dollar now is just because you got the, the increase to $15 an hour, uh, if that, that very income might now be only worth um, $13 um, an hour a year, you know, a year ago. So that's that's the thing. It's it could it could be such an important conversation and it could be such an important issue that's bring up, brought up there. But then in the second answer, you immediately see um, what the concern here is and whose perspective we're looking at, which is the perspective of an investor who only cares about returns on investment. I mean, that's what margin pressure is, right? Margin pressure means that that's the difference between what we spend and what we're making, and that's our margin. And if we pay more, our margin's smaller, we're still making the same amount of money, you know, that kind of thing. It's, it just means it's going to be, uh, these companies are going to be less profitable because they're now paying their uh, workers more. And it's, I'm not even mad at these people. Like it's uh, it's just the uh, the way the system is constructed, and um, yeah. But that storytelling is so powerful. I mean, this is this is why I found your point of view so fascinating and interesting because that this this kind of conversation goes on unremarked every single day on CNBC, on Fox Business, in the Wall Street Journal. All of this stuff is happening at all times, and never is the story told the way you just were telling it. I guess I'm in the heterodox economics field, so I know a lot of people who are doing work in economics that is trying to get away from these kinds of narratives. Um, and I, I am sometimes I am pretty hopeful. Um, I, you know, when Yellen said that she supports a global income, t a global tax on businesses, a global corporate tax, I almost fell off my chair. I felt like that showed that something is changing. So. Um, I want to call back to the article you read at the start. You're talking about economic models, like the concept of uh, perfect competition, and you write, and I'm quoting here, without the novel first teaching us how to deal with worlds that are not technically true, but still believable, theoretical models might not exist in the way they do today. I just love that idea of novels being technically not true, but believable, I'm not sure I've ever heard that definition, but it feels perfect to me. So how does it apply to economics? 
I first want to say this is uh, coming from Catherine Gallagher's amazing work on um, who, and she really tells us um, she really shows how um, fiction in the early uh, 18th century just had a completely different um, just was conceived completely differently than it was later in the century and that it really like got people attuned to believing for example in paper money as a representation of um, uh, of uh, gold for example um, but yeah to the question of um, how is this applied in uh, economics I think um, to some degree you could say about any hypothesis that it is technically not true but believable right any kind of moment where you imagine something that you then want to construct a study out of um, requires that mechanism of fiction that's that's why it's maybe not that interesting to say this what i think is interesting about economics is that this fictional mechanism is baked into their assumptions so the story of opportunity cost for example that i talk about in the article is it is incredibly fundamental. It's um, in the quantitative social sciences. It's still um, the basic assumption. When when people talk about the rationality assumption, this is what they mean. This kind of decision making, where you have someone who you imagine someone who has to decide between like different options. How do I allocate the next hour of my time? And I feel like when I when we write or when I talk to my students about writing, some of what you're describing, I guess I try to avoid. The language of capitalism, but the language of choice, um, you know, talking about how characters make decisions is very much how I talk about stories. You know, what are they giving up? Um, and have they actually given anything up? You know, or even the way that people talk about futures, right? Um, which is the language of uh, writers commenting on each other's um, on each other's work, or even readers as they're thinking, you know, what are the futures I'm predicting here? Like, what are what are the possible outcomes? And which is also the language of economics. And it's, um, I was very, yeah, it was very briefly someone who covered the economy. And um, I remember sort of realizing that the economy was actually really interesting if you paid attention to it in this way. Like, they both have really specific relationships, both fiction and the economy have really specific relationships to time. Um, the way that it the speed at which it moves forward, um, the way in which sort of different kinds of bets are placed. Um, I don't know, this is, this is such an interesting analogy to me. And I think, you know, although I'm certainly going to go back in the classroom and continue to avoid talking about the real estate of my students' stories, I'm always trying to eradicate this language. <laughs> well, I mean, units of happiness aren't real, but they're really important in economic theory, as, as Carolyn was saying. But like, yeah. character arcs aren't real either. <laughs> we, we talk about those all the time, right? They're an, an integral part of how a novel is made. Y.G. Dimmock has a really beautiful essay on... Um... The Rise of Silas Lapham, a novel, a 19th century realist novel. Um, and she opens it kind of with, with this meditation of, isn't every novelist an economist in the sense that they have to allocate different, you have to decide what resources in the book are going to go to whom, <laughs> you know, and how, and even just the resource of how much space do you uh, give uh, this character versus this character. I highly recommend that essay. We'll put it in our show notes. Listeners, look for it there. Absolutely. Um, all right. So let's say I'm a person who does not watch CNBC or, God forbid, uh, Fox Business, where the money, honey, reigns king, supreme. Do you know who that is? I do not. They talk about Maria Bartiromo, who is a tr sort of 
Trump shows up on her show all the time and people call her the money, honey. I'm not making this up. This is not my sexist terminology. I'm sorry. It is funny. Uh, or read the Wall Street Journal. I don't have a Robinhood account. I have a Charles Schwab account. Um, I could care less about the stock market. Imagine that I'm a person who doesn't have any of these things, right? Other than this terror that the stock market has for rising wages, which are good for most people, what other kinds of economic stories are equally deceptive? You know, how can I learn to read economists better? I mean, you're, uh, I'm kind of like that. I don't have a Robinhood account, although I briefly thought about it in the uh, GameStop, um, when, when GameStop happened. Um, but uh, I think actually the most important thing is to remember that whenever economists tell you something, even though it sounds very authoritative, they're not talking to you about uh, physical facts of nature. They're talking, they're telling you their interpretation of relationships between, between humans, social relationships. And that means that whenever they say something, that also can have an impact on how these relationships change. And I'm saying this because that simple fact, the the very idea that someone like an economist tells you here's what the economy looks like and i'm using all these fancy terms and it's going to be really hard for you to follow that's that's the thing that turns people off from it that's the reason that very smart people will not start studying economics in uh while they're in college and um it breaks my heart because it would need much more of the people in economics i think to make it better i don't i don't have anything against the studies and even some of the stories that i don't agree with i don't have anything against them my problem is that some of them are too powerful and i just i just wish that more people would come to economics who would question that and who will tell other stories I want to just shout out briefly to UMKC, where I teach, University of Missouri, Kansas City, has a heterodox economics department. And Stephanie Kelton was a member of this department up until recently. Um, so we have some familiarity with that here. Um, now, you said you don't want to make predictions, but I do want to know, we're talking about the Biden boom. Is it going to happen or not? I think there's going to be a boom. I don't think, I honestly don't think it's going to be because of Biden. I think it's going to be because now there's a vaccine and um you know i mean it a boom can only exist because there was a bust and we had and that was last year was a huge bust so there is going to be a boom anything happening now directly afterwards is going to feel like a boom i think but i'm not an economist and i have no idea and that's just my story <laughs> i don't know that sounds that sounds right to me i like that story it sounds realistic <laughs> But the best part about it is that wages in the low-wage sector are rising, and that's the thing I care most about. Is there a possibility that this Biden boom will be different than other ones that, like the Reagan era, which was about cutting taxes and getting government out of things and not giving people money, right? In other words, booms tend to increase economic disparity in the past, the ones that I think about and look at, right, 1920s, right, or the, or the Reagan era, or even the 90s. But... I wonder if because of Biden's actual policies that he's giving people money directly, right, that he's looking to do all these, you know, the, the infrastructure bills, if, if it gets passed, is supposed to help people who don't have college degrees, right? Is there some chance that this boom will actually help those lower wage workers that you are talking about? I think that's a really great question. To me, Reagan to Obama is the 
anything happening between Reagan and Obama was following the logic of neoliberalism. And that, I don't mean that as an insult. I just mean... We usually mean it as an insult on this program. <laughs> um, I, I mean, just um, the logic that the state is there to prop up a free market and, you know, keep out of it as much as possible other than that. Um, I think that logic has changed uh, since the Trump administration. Um, under the Trump administration, I think the primary logic, I mean, I know a lot of uh, libertarians and economists to, who thought Trump was an absolute disaster because he, in a way, upended a lot of the um, macroeconomic, like a lot of the um, health beliefs about what good economic policy looks like. Because I think the primary um, Mm, the primary logic of that administration was race in the sense of he, Trump had to appeal to his base. Um, and now we are in a period, it's just so interesting to see that that Biden, who was in the Obama administration, which I think was still operating under this neoliberal logic, I think now he is operating under a different logic. And I think it's very fascinating. Um, it's It's one that does, I think, more actively redistribute wealth. So the idea that economics is more literature than science seems obvious and thrilling to us. Uh, we host a podcast about how everything in politics has already been covered in literature. We are the choir. But it's not so obvious to mainstream opinion or the academy or economists. So I'm curious, how do you get involved in this convergence of disciplines? And, and how did you convince Duke that you should study this? For me, I, I was just always really interested in both. And I thought I wasn't smart enough to study economics. Um, even though I was always good at math, um, I just always thought, you know, this is, I didn't realize that that was a very gendered thought, that I wasn't, that I thought I wouldn't like I was make just it. thinking that. <laughs> um, no, it's absolutely, in hindsight, I know. Um, but, well, literature is also a really important thing to me. So it's um, kind of a moment where I realized that I can um, study both and that um, the economy and literature actually have quite a lot to do with, it, with each other was when I took a class at UC Irvine. I was doing um, exchange year in Irvine and I took a class with um, Richard Godden um, and on, on like Marxism and literature. And so I started realizing, oh, I can actually do these two things together. And then it just kind of became a challenge. And then I started studying economics as well, because I was like, well, all these things, all these critiques make so much sense. Why are economists, why does it seem like whenever anyone t speaks to economists, um, th any critique kind of just seems to fall off of them and they don't even kind of take it seriously. And so I thought, OK, well, then I want to study economics as well and understand where they're coming from. Um, I think that's that's how it happened. How did I um, how did I convince Duke? It, it didn't need much convincing. I just uh, they're very they're very interdisciplinary. I'm lucky that like a lot of faculty are really into this, and I actually have an economist on my committee as well. Um, uh, but uh, it wasn't yeah, it wasn't that hard. But I it was also the only school where I got accepted. And I think it's because that was also the only school where it was easy to write the statement of purpose, where, where it didn't feel like I was uh, stretching the truth or anything. <laughs> well, look, it's just, it's been fascinating to talk to you. Carolyn, thank you so much for joining us. Listeners, we encourage you to check out her writing and we'll put links to her articles in the show notes. Thank you both so much for having me. It was really fun talking. 
And now we're thrilled to talk to Sanjana Sathian, author of the acclaimed new novel, Gold Diggers. Sanjana was raised in Georgia by Indian immigrant parents. She's a graduate of the Iowa Writers' Workshop, an alumna of the Clarion Writers' Workshop, and a former Paul and Daisy Soros Fellow. She has also worked as a journalist in San Francisco and in Mumbai. Her award-winning short fiction appears or is forthcoming in Conjunctions, Boulevard, Joyland, Salt Hill, and The Master's Review. She's written nonfiction for The New Yorker, The New York Times, The Washington Post, The San Francisco Chronicle, Food and Wine, The Boston Globe, The Juggernaut, The Millions, Aussie, and more. She has taught creative writing to high school, college, graduate, and postgraduate level students in Iowa, Alaska, India, and New Zealand. Sanjana, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for being here. Um, we want to talk to you about this novel, which traces the curious ambitions of the children of two Indian immigrant families and the unusual methods they use to pursue those ambitions. But I wondered if you could start our conversation off by reading from it. Sure thing. This is coming from the end of the second chapter. I sweated through a strange dream. Ramesh uncle and I were aboard a ship baking for America. I never saw my own face or his. We were ghostly bodies with splotches of light for heads. We kept pacing the ship deck as the ocean sprayed our faces, and I kept saying, how will we know when we get there? And he said, there's a big statue. And when we berthed at the California coastline, an enormous oxidized bronze Anita loomed, one hand high in the air, holding not a torch, but instead a very large tiara. I woke around too. I could not imagine lying still through the night. I tiptoed downstairs and stepped outside, barefoot, making my way to the Dial's front lawn. I stood a moment and considered the facade of that strange house, the mustard yellow and the lively red door, and I thought it was time for me to break something. I lifted the watering can behind the azalea bush. The key was missing. So I edged around back and found next to the cement path a stone. I gripped it in both hands as I approached the basement, where Anita and her mother had been the night I left my knife in the kitchen. I had the sense that some boundary between my dream and my waking life had not yet fully shut. The bottom square of glass on the basement door window shattered quickly, and I didn't think about the shards protruding when I pushed my arm through and undid the lock, making use of the digital dexterity I had been developing in hopes of one day removing a girl's bra. I dropped the rock on the earth outside. No alarm. The only sound was the house itself, the ambient noise of the air conditioning, the hum of a refrigerator. Last I'd been in this basement, it was unfinished, with boxes piled up by the water heater. Now, though... The first thing I thought was mad scientist. Three long tables, the kind Anita's mother might have used while catering, were covered with white plastic tablecloths. A mess of tools was laid out, a large stone basin, a blowtorch, tongs, a juicer. I thought of the buzzing I had heard the last time I was here. A huge plastic jar of sugar. I looked down to see a trickle of blood dripping from my elbow to my wrist. I pressed my shirt to it. I moved toward the fridge, which was also new. Sometime recently, the Dials had added a small kitchen, a fridge, a kitchen island on wheels, a wire rack. When I opened it, still tending the wounded arm, I saw the thing altering Anita, like a vast shaft of light striking her chest, growing her up. On the top shelf were three round yellow lemons. On the second, several vials of liquid, 
and on the lowest, a large pitcher filled with the same substance. Each vial was partially covered with a piece of masking tape on which something had been written. The plump belly of the pitcher was also covered with tape. I made out two letters, SP and some numbers, 81106. I said them aloud. They were the previous day's date, August 11th, 2006. I lifted the pitcher to examine it outside the fluorescent interior. A bit of blood streaked to the handle. Through the glass, the liquid glowed, yellow gold. That hue beamed through the masking tape. SP, I read again, SP. I returned the, pit the pitcher to the fridge, lifted the vials. One, nearly drained, read PN, followed by more numbers. The date, because now I had in my head that these were dates, I realized of the spring fling dance. I picked up a few more until I found the one I'd been expecting to see. JB, with the date of the Putts graduation party. Something taken from each of those people. From SP, Shruti Patel. From PN, Prachi Narayan. From JD, J. Putt. Was this what had made Anita different that summer? In that gem-like glint, Prachi's necklace on the parking lot asphalt, the jewelry cabinet open in Mrs. Putt's closet. I leaned over the pitcher SP. It smelled like it was lemonade. Fresh, saccharin and sour at once. Not quite the same concoction we made all those years ago. It was now laced with something new, something that had belonged to Shruti Patel. I drank. It was tangy, but sweetness followed and followed. Bubbles were settling in my stomach. I never wanted it to end. As the liquid streamed down my throat, I felt a great sense of purpose. And then, stop, stop, Neil, fucking stop, came a pinched, panic voice. Whose? Which one of them? As a throbbing began behind my eyes, Anita's face materialized before me. Her ha hair was haloed by the eerie low basement light. A cold nausea set in, and then a fuzzing of my vision, but I was still drinking. Neil, you have to stop, please, I heard Anita say. Her hands closed around the pitcher. She was trying to tug it away from me with surprising strength. You've had too much. Thank you. Um, I love that passage. It's the moment where Neil, whose um, point of view dominates the book, um, we see him experience that heady potion for the first time. And... Um, in this episode, we're talking about the literature of boom times. And this book has a few timelines. We Wait, see I think you should say more about that potion. Like, what? what is the potion? It's not a spoiler to give away the potion, because that happens pretty early in the book, right? Can you tell us about the potion quick? <laughs> yeah, it's on the jacket copy, so not an official spoiler. So um, uh, Neil, uh, Neil Narayan, 15-year-old, growing up in the suburbs of Atlanta, Georgia, discovers that Anita, his neighbor, and her mother, Anjali, have been stealing gold from other Indian Americans in their community. And they turn this gold into a magical elixir. And in drinking this elixir, they are able to steal the ambitions and the energies of other people in their community. And it's, yeah, it's, um, it's such a great idea. And um, so we see in the prologue, the Indian childhood of Anita's mother and how she gets the recipe for that kind of ambitious cocktail. There's a part set in Georgia where you're from in 2005, including that section you just read. Um, and Neil and Anita are in high school and kind of seeking 
academic acceptance, among other kinds, and a second section set in California in 2016, where the business and tech sectors are very active and money is flowing freely. And in between those two more contemporary timelines, we, timelines, we have, of course, the 2008 crash. Um, and I was curious about when you started writing the book, what the economic environment was like, and how you think about the relationship between the economy in which you were writing and the histories your characters were living. Yeah. Um, so I should say, I think I think the ways in which my novel is a novel about money or the economy, it's sort of like incidental downstream stuff, um, like the con- the context that uh, the book takes place in. There's there's 2006 suburban Georgia when my characters are teenagers, so they don't really have any language for what's going on around them. But what's going on around them is their second generation teenagers growing up in the suburbs, and that creates a very specific you know, middle to upper middle class striving context. Um, And then the second half takes place in 2016 Silicon Valley, where people are starting to have a little bit more language for maybe there's something eerie or off about where this upward mobility that they have achieved has brought them. Um, They're in the middle of a so-called tech boom. And what is the potential downside or dark side of that tech boom? So I was drawing on two periods that, you know, I lived through um, in, in Georgia and California when I started writing this in about 2017. Um, and I was interested in kind of the, com- the community that I come from, the movement that we had made from being um, kind of a lot of people in the world that I grew up in were like middle class scrimpers and savers in these like cookie cutter subdivisions. Um when I was growing up. And then I looked up and 10 years later, there was something more like excess. Um, People had gotten fancy six-figure jobs and were kind of taking for granted um, a power that I think their parents had hoped for them to have. And I was personally sort of disturbed by um, what it meant for all of this striving to deliver us to this this position that that felt like a complicity with excess. And so um, the novel is, I think, concerned with with that moment um, in which I was writing 2017 to 2019, when the world was starting to see what was wrong with having these sort of billionaire robber barons um, of the tech world um, take over. One of the nice complexities of the economic Um, the socioeconomic, I should say, striations in the earlier version of the community in 2005 is that um, Anita's mother, um, Anjali, is actually working, she runs a, she runs a catering business. And so sometimes there's like this subtle, there's this interesting class division and sort of snobbery in the way that the others speak about her. Um, And then also, like the sort of um, way in which her her job puts her in other Indian Americans' homes in a way that makes it possible for her to steal things, um, as is alluded to in the passage that you read, and then also sets her apart in some ways um, from the others in that community. And there is this sort of desire for excess. And talking about excess, right, you know, there's 2017 to 2019, and then, of course, like the horrid 2020 and 2021 where we do see this excess, like these billionaires who are raking it in. And then, of course, tons of Americans, um, you know, more and more people slipping into poverty, people losing jobs, um, right? An enormous number of job losses are women. And when we'll talk about gender a little bit later, what has it been like for this book that you wrote about this moment of excess to come out now? 
I mean, it's interesting because I think that people maybe have more vocabulary, particularly for the second half of the book, the stuff set in Silicon Valley, than they did even when I was writing it. Um, I I think that people thought of Silicon Valley as this like weird, quirky place where people rode around on hoverboards and were interested in building robots. Um, but like it wasn't it wasn't that menacing when I moved out there in 2013. There wasn't like there wasn't cultural vocabulary for how dangerous I think that place actually is. Um, and then I think there were turning points, right? Like the the election when people started to realize that maybe Facebook was not a morally neutral platform. Um, and then over the last four years, um, as we've started to realize, like maybe there's something wrong with the fact that you can be a billionaire in Silicon Valley who's completely insulated from a moment like like this one today. So um, I definitely didn't write it with sort of sociological intent, as I, I don't think any novelist ever writes that way. Um, but I think there's been like more social and cultural vocabulary for people to be in communication with the stuff that's just there in the second half of the book. And I think that people understand the sort of implicit critiques um, that that half of the book makes. Your book also uh, references The Great Gatsby, which is one of the classic boom novels, right, of American literature, and, and everyone is familiar with it. And I have my own critiques of that book. But, you know, it's a, it's a book that's worth referencing in this in this category. I went back and looked up. It came out in 1925. So it was actually published. It was set, supposed to be set in like 22. So it's kind of was written during the boom. And yet it wasn't popular. It wasn't popular when it came out. It didn't do well after the crash of 29. People were like, Who's this asshole writing about rich people? Nobody cares about him anymore. And it wasn't until after the Second World War, really, that that book became popular. But I wondered if you could talk about how you thought about The Great Gatsby, why you referenced it, what you view as the relationship between your novel and, and that book. Yeah, I mean, Gatsby's in there because it's the book you read when you're in 10th grade. Um, and the characters <laughs> well, are in 10th true. grade. Yeah, and I mean, for me, like, Gatsby was a novel that introduced me to some core concepts of American literature. Um and so it's just in my bloodstream in a way that I think like it might not have hit every student the same way it hit me. I didn't get America when I was growing up. And uh, then someone handed me The Great Gatsby in, in 10th grade English and was like, hey, this is this thing called the American dream. And all of American art is obsessed with this idea. And all of American politics is sort of oriented around this fiction. And things clicked for me around that. And so the fiction of making it big, the green light at the end of the dock, all that sort of is that what you're talking about here? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But I think it's it's not just about like The Great Gatsby is a novel of economic excess, but it's also a novel of like the the falseness of lust and love as a thing that can remake you and reinvention. And reinvention. I mean, your characters are reinventing themselves through this potion and great and and Jay Gatsby is not the person that he says that he is, right? So there's this element of falseness about making it to the top that I find common in between the two books. Yeah, yeah, definitely, but also there's a conflation I think in 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 both books uh between ambition and lust and love and greed itself. Like Nick Carraway spends that novel being fascinated by rich people, which is how Scott Fitzgerald was. He went off to Princeton and felt like he was this Midwestern outsider and uh, fell in love with wealth. And so Neil has critiques of power, but he also is is consumed with a kind of lust for power. And I think that dance in the narration is something that I've always found interesting in the great narrators of American literature. Um, it's there in All the King's Men, too, which is actually the kind of structural corollary for this book. The narrator, Jack Burden, 
has criticisms to level against Southern politics, but he is also deeply involved in the power machine of Southern politics. I have a really weird theory. No, I don't think it's weird. I think it's good. But Sugi and I were arguing about this before the show. Um, and I want to see what you think about this. I, I, what I was struck by in your book, and given the commonalities between the things that you're writing about and prior American fiction written by a, a wasp like Fitzgerald, right, is that this idea of going to a... I went to Princeton. I was in the same meeting club as Fitzgerald. I used to see his documents in the, you know case in, in the library that I was, did my studies, right? And, and going to that school was the thing that my family had been building me to do ever since I was born, right? And it had taken several generations to get this accomplished, okay? And that was a goal. Now, I feel like today, if you look at Trump supporters now or the Republican Party, my family were Republicans, right? They wanted that for me. But Republicans now, they don't want their kids to go to Ivy League schools. They don't want their kids to get educated in the way that I was educated, and yet, and there are other groups in the, in the country that are taking up that interest. And you're, the characters in your novel, for instance, who are Indian immigrants, are interested in that exact ideal that was the ideal that my family had. I wondered if you could talk about that. Yeah, I mean, the concept of upward mobility, um, I deal with it from a very specific context, which is immigrant upward mobility. And not just immigrant, but like the Indian diaspora is a hyper-specific diaspora in the U.S. And I say Indian, not just South Asian, because the way that the visa system works in order to actually get you from India to America is there's a, a lot of pre-selection. There's basically caste and class pre-selection. So it means that the people who are coming here already come from some relative amount of privilege. Often this is not a, always true, but in aggregate, this is sort of like demographically true. And so then you have this, this community in the U.S. that is breeding these sort of artificial values of everything you're talking about, put, pitting all their hopes on if we get our kids to these fancy schools, then they will possess the power. Um, I, I don't I don't know about the sort of differences between the way white Republicans place their hopes on those institutions versus the way my community did. That's that's a fascinating thing I haven't talked about or I haven't thought about very much. But but the thing that that I spent a lot of time thinking about in creating this novel was um, what goes what is missing from that sort of narrowness of 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 hope. Um, but also what is going into the people who have those hopes? Like I was trying to both critique and empathize, which is a really hard, um, hard line to walk. Um, could I understand why the, those were the things that my community wanted for us? Um, could I see how that was damaging? And could I also see why they that was the only thing they could imagine? There's this interesting um, Anjali, the the mother of uh, Anita, who is Neil's friend um, and sort of foil throughout the novel. She has a nebulousness of want, um, which is so interesting. Like it's a nebulousness that I think feel like many people find really even hard to admit to. Um, and there's also an exchange between two characters where... Um, I think it's Wendy, where Neil says, you know, you're going to go to Harvard and then what's going to happen? And she says, whatever I fucking want. And I was like, and then, but then there's this void of, you know, what is it that, that, that one does want and what kind of character, um, you know, wants something specific beyond that and is able to, is able to land on it, but also maybe give themselves permission to be a little messy. Um, and it seems like that kind of messiness, that nebulousness of want, is also something that um, surfaces more in cultures of excess. So Whitney and I were also talking about David Foster Wallace, George Saunders, Jonathan Franzen, this like 
litany of wasps and the critiques of consumerism in their work. And they're writing about societies in excess. And I'm thinking here of the corrections. And Whitney noted that books from that time period largely don't address race and gender and identity of other issues that are front and center today. Um, and that your book also puts front and center. And he was he posited that a novel like Infinite Just could never be written today because you know, they're entertaining them. There's a willingness there to entertain themselves to death. Or a concern that the worst thing that could happen would be that you have to watch a video that kills you. That seems like now we have a lot more problems than that, you know, that you might have to worry about. What do you think? Um, I don't know if I totally agree with that. I think... Um, yes. <laughs> I'm spoiling for the fight. <laughs> it's fine. It's good to argue. I think, so I think one common criticism that is leveled against um, sort of like the the white man novel um, is like, where are the people of color? Where are the women? And like, I sort of get that, but I don't think the response is like, add those people to your fiction. It's just like publish more books by those people. Um, like people, I, like there, there aren't that many people outside of the Indian and Asian Americans in my book. Like I'm, I'm writing about like narrowly about my community. So it makes total sense to me that someone would write narrowly about their community. Um, and so that's, I, I don't think it's weird that uh, novels like Infinite Jest and The Corrections were concerned with a very particular corner of American excess. And I think that's just as legitimate a corner. Maybe this is because I was raised on the novels of white men and added kind of other people to my canon when I got old enough to realize that something had been left out. So maybe I have a kind of forgiveness because that's just what I learned to read on. Um, but I think I think also like, people are still concerned with something like I think something like the entertainment is like a fascinating and enduring conceit that totally makes sense to me still like like DFW wrote that before the automatic continue button on Netflix I think this is totally something that people are concerned with and I think actually like DFW would probably be writing about QAnon now like that is the version of the entertainment like there's an incredible New York Times podcast called Rabbit Hole that is about the YouTube rabbit hole that sucked people in who were not radicalized and then became radicalized. Um, so I think like the, the DFW DeLillo novel of today would probably be the QAnon novel. Um, and I know like Hari Kunzru wrote Red Pill. Um, there are novels that are concerned with that. Um, I've been working on essays about sort of similar things of like what happens when the internet sucks you in that way. So yeah, I don't know. I think that's enduring. I'm always sad that DFW is no longer with us, and the idea of DFW writing a QAnon novel has just made me so sad. I really want to read that. <laughs> Sorry, Whitney, go ahead. I was just thinking, I mean, it's, yes, I agree that those novels are sort of mon monocultural, but more importantly, I think that they are thinking about consumerism, right? And I remember there was a way when that idea of, like, we have too many things to buy, and too, and the ways that we're entertained are really bad, like you know, the long passage on the um, cruise line that... Um, uh, that the parents take and the corrections. And then David Foster Wallace also himself wrote a long Harper's essay about cruise lines and their excess, right? It became like a, a way of thinking about the culture. Well, now the cruise lines are shut down because of COVID and people can't afford to go. Like, you know, like you see how you cycle out of a period like that, right? I think we're about to enter into a period in which people are going to start writing about these issues again. And I think it comes cyclically, right? Does that make sense? It, yeah, totally. I mean, I think I think for me, like my my novel is so grounded in a particular community's access, though. And so, like, you know, you all read the book. There are there are sections at a Miss Teen India beauty pageant and then at a bridal, an Indian bridal expo um, where I actually thought a lot about like 
DFW's native informants at the fair and the ship cruise line. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that's in the book. You're critiquing some of those things, right? Totally. But I think, I think like a lot of the Indian Americans I know are not actually going to be that affected by the current bus because they're so insulated by their like upper middle class tech and finance and consulting jobs. And it's actually deeply disturbing how disconnected they are and how much like you know, I was talking to someone the other day who was forwarding some tech, some article from the business section of the New York Times that was like, the way the pandemic will change work is that more people in finance are quitting their jobs and want to go into tech. And like, is that really, is that really your corner of experience that that's how you think the pandemic has changed America? Like, what, what is wrong with your particularly narrow experience of the world that you can't think outside that? But this is something that I feel kind of a lot of rage against my particular Indian American community for is that there there has been like we are we aspired our way into those like during the Clinton neoliberal boom years to be like that. And now we have the opportunity to be like that. You know, I, I watched people go from buying their jeans out of Kmart discount bins to now, you know, remaking their redoing their homes as like a hobby. Um, and that's something that I just haven't seen affected by the booms and busts of the the 2010s and the 20 and and now 2020s because these people are have like recession proof jobs um yeah that's true and also i feel like a thing that i'm seeing come through my social media feeds from indian and indian american friends is this intense awareness of course in this like horrible moment of like vaccine inequity and people realizing because it's coming to them through whatsapp or facebook or twitter um, that, you know, that their relatives and friends um, and communities in India are facing a very different situation. So they're aware, they seem aware of their insulation or be, like they're becoming aware in this painful moment of a lot of the privilege they have, maybe in a way they didn't quite feel as viscerally before. I think that the Indian diaspora in particular is cleaving into a community that is like, there's one version that's complacent, complicit with excess and never thinking about these things at all. And then another version that has started to realize, like by studying the way that the Indian diaspora was formed by thinking about, okay, now that we've arrived, what do we owe back and kind of these, these things that you're talking about. And so I actually think there's a pretty intense cleaving between basically centrist Democrats and, um, you know, democratic socialists. And you see it, you see it like in our representatives, you have like Pramila Jaipal and Ro Khanna and people like that. Um, but they're not always like, I, I know Indian Americans who hate those, those representatives because they think that they're too rad leftist. And, um, yeah, I think, I think that really is a huge divide. So we've talked a little bit about, um, Anita's mother, Anjali, who, begins the book and she isn't given the same opportunities as her brother as her brothers because of gender and tries to do better by her own daughter which is so much of what drives um the events of the book and it's true that in a lot of south asian families gold which is real wealth is given to women i mean it's dowry in some cases right historically it's dowry and there's a moment where they say to neil you know you won't understand this you're a boy um, and I just, yeah, I just laughed. Um, and it was a dark laugh. And then the story is from the stories from Neil's point of view. And I, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the novel and gender in that choice. 
Yeah. Um, this, this has been like the, the question that comes up in every single one of my interviews. And I wish I had a better answer for why Neil was the narrator. Um, it wasn't for any like big dramatic political reason. It's just the voice that consumed me. Um, I originally wrote from Anita's perspective and from Anjali's perspective, and they just weren't any fun. They were really kind of like, Flat Anita in particular had a lot of problems as a narrator. And the, the whole reason is that in the first half, she is so ambitious that she has no inner life. And so she's not an interesting narrator because like that's not an interesting person to witness the world. She's not questioning the world. So why would why would I want to be in her head? Um, I would have had to do um, some kind of like ironic distance that wasn't that wasn't fun. And I kind of head hopped out of Anita into a peripheral character, um, Neil. And I realized at the time that just on a craft level, he was going to open the world for me because he was clueless in just the right ways, um, but also curious in just the right ways. He's not quite as ambitious as everyone around him, but he has an inner life because he loves to read, because he has questions about his community. And later, I think I realized that like some of those things are fairly coded male privileges within the community. Like I've I've seen more Indian American male slackers than I have seen Indian American female slackers. That just <laughs> seems to happen. And it seems to happen because our parents have different expectations of us. Um, but Neil is also in me. But I, I think I think what's most interesting to me about that choice in retrospect is that that Neil has access to. Um, a certain amount of power that allows him to then reject it, whereas Anita is is clinging to uh, and and striving for that power. Um, Neil Neil has the opportunity to say no to something that Anita finds herself like grabbing for, and and her mom has to grab for it in the same way. Her mom is the first person in the book who is called a gold digger because she sort of sort of chooses the the right man who's going to get her to America, and then Anita herself kind of replicates some of that uh, behavior when she's in her 20s, she starts dating like a rich kind of like oligarch, rich Indian man she meets at Stanford. And that's another way of clinging to someone else's power, um, because for her, it's more like she has a kind of humanities um, and social science intelligence that is not respected in the valley. And her her boyfriend is respected. And so she she depends on that just the way her non-engineer mother clings to an engineer father. Um uh, so I mostly have thoughts on what happened after I made that choice, but it certainly wasn't a, an intentional choice at the start. Okay, so speaking of Neil, uh, he becomes a PhD student of economic history. I wonder if you could, if we could ask you to read another brief passage in which he describes his intellectual work. Sure. I was spending my summer attempting to explain why and how one era leads to the next. Why a distant shout of gold in California draws migrants across the brutal Sierra Nevada. How gold lust formed railroads and poisoned rivers. How the 49ers ache to stake their claim on the earth to make a home in America, coalesce to change the course of the West and the world. My work as a student of history was the moral opposite of my work as a debater. As a debater, I'd lived in the present and made arguments about possible futures, claiming wantonly that someone's well-intentioned proposition would collapse the economy or cause nuclear war. The fact that the truth of the future never came to bear on a given round, that we were not accountable for being wrong, for defending a protracted occupation of Afghanistan, or for arguing, as I did for most of my sophomore year, that investing in clean coal was preferable to initiating a renewable portfolio standard meant we were relieved of the, of the responsibility of truth-telling at all. But when you study the past, 
you know how things turn out. The weight of the present demands something of you. I was supposed to be constructing an argument about all that followed the California gold rush. But even after many hours of picking dully through papers on the abstract forces of money and power in the late 19th century, I found myself without interesting characters to follow through the era. And while I understood the tropes and pitfalls of narrative history, I wanted to meet someone in my research whom I could live with, whose voice I could hear, or perhaps had heard once before. Thanks. Um, I really loved those paragraphs. And I thought it was such an interesting choice. Um, I mean, Whitney and I both teach, uh, and we both teach graduate students and write, of course. Um, you know, the graduate student is like a classic impoverished <laughs> figure in um, in the United States and in academia. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about Neil, the graduate student versus the world of Silicon Valley and, and his deep knowledge of this um, American history and, and making him that person. Yeah, Grad students are interesting right now, especially because I think um, they're in a world where um, they can't count on job security the way the generation before them uh, could. And so they're living in a kind of unstable and contingent world uh, where they're starting to you know, unionize and think about the sort of holes in the economy and in the safety net. But they're also still often very, very privileged where they come from. Um, often a, a lot of privilege, and certainly that's the case um, for Neil. But I think he's experiencing a little bit of what I experienced in the Valley as a writer was like, I seem to socially belong to these circles of the elite, um, and yet my my salary doesn't indicate that. Um, and so that gives me this like one foot in, one foot out. Like it gave me the ability to see how power functioned, and it also meant that I had like fundamental empathy for people whose like labor situations were not stable. Um, and so I think that's that's kind of where Neil gets his personal orientation to Silicon Valley from. He also has this like intellectual grouchiness that was really fun to write. Um, really fun to read, too. <laughs> he's a Bernie bro and he hates everyone around him because he's like, you guys all claim to be liberal, but there's something you know, neoliberal about all of you. He, he, he has a deep distaste for all of these people, but he also can't get rid of them because that's the world he's from. And so I think that's always a really fun place to write from as someone who belongs to a world irrevocably, but cannot get outside of it. I mean, that's, that's Edith Wharton. That's like the great, the novels of manners um, are all like that. So it's fun to deploy that. Well, it also reminded me of another, I mean, uh, another boom book that we've mentioned already is The Corrections. So Chip, the character in The Corrections, is also a, a college professor who doesn't have money, who is from a family that used to kind of have more middle class money, but he's seeing wealth, right? And he's wanting that. And and much of the book turns on his learning that that is a, that not so great, you know. Uh, you know, he ends up going to Eastern Europe to try to all these scams, all this sort of stuff. Like, that that dynamic of somebody who is on the on the fringes of a wealthy situation, right? But able to understand and critique it. And he also has all that anti-capitalist stuff that he's teaching his students, right? I thought that was an interesting conversation between those your book and his and that book in, in ways that I thought was productive. I mean, I love the character of Chip. I think it's really important to note though that like Chip is mocked um constantly. Like, I mean, he's sticking a fish down his pants in the first hundred pages, like the screenplay he's writing has the word breast in it 500 times. Um, 
And so I think that's that's another thing you have to be able to do when you're giving your characters a bunch of big ideas that you agree with is to also undercut them all the time. Otherwise, it's just so boxing. Um, and I mean, I think a lot about like the narrator in 1004, too, um, uh, by Ben Lerner, who is like living next to Occupy Wall Street and like giving them a chance to shower him in his apartment and like his sympathies are there, but also he is sort of like paralyzed and can't really participate in the protests himself because of his own neuroses. So I think that's important is to to realize that the the character's behavior might be deeply morally flawed or or morally paralyzed, even as they have the right ideas about the world. This is really funny. I'm just thinking of Every day, um, my I go on a walk and I pass a mansion where there's a sign in the window that says "Dismantle Inequitable Institutions." What? <laughs> it's so great. I kind of like just every time I pass it, I'm like, I'm like, house of hypocrisy. How have you stood for so long? Um, and just like yeah. there's, I mean, it's sh- like there's no like indication of any. Um, like it's just like in the Twin Cities, it's, it is a, it's a house that would cost a considerable amount of money. And we're also a place that is, you know, we talked about this earlier on this podcast, like we these encamp, we, we had encampments, um, for people experiencing housing insecurity. And then there's this person who's just like, I'm, I'm on the right side. <laughs> like, yeah. like, let's see, you, let's see you demolish your house. And then I will, I will talk to you after that. Um, but yeah, like this sort of incongruity of all these characters and the slightly ridiculous figure. I actually think of like maybe um, like some of the figures from Austin, like the shabby gentleman who's just a little bit foolish, like Mr. Collins or something, who's sort of like, well, I come from the right people. Um, I just don't have the wallet for it. And and like that. Yeah, it, it does seem like more and more like like some new class of folks um, through the economic developments that we're talking about that are more recent, like maybe those people are also becoming, Im- the, you're going to see the immigrant character version of that. Um, and maybe something else. So we often end the show by asking our guests to hazard predictions. And I wonder if we can ask you to do this too. Your book is full of this anxiety of ambition. You know, we've talked about Neil's anxiety, um, Anita's anxiety, obviously. And, and right now I feel like we're seeing a lot of anxiety about the economy is it going to overheat? I've seen that verb in headlines more often recently. How do you think the literature coming from this moment will relate to the economy and money? Well, I think it's still kind of a massive economic privilege to be able to write fiction. And so I think a lot of that anxiety will be, it, it will probably be written from a position of privilege. Um, now, I think that like with MFA programs funding people, there's always the opportunity to have a little more diversity, but I, I think we're still going to see a lot of anxiety from the relatively privileged. Um, uh, I think that the immigrant novel in particular, and I'll, I'll speak to, I think like the Indian immigrant novel is going to be at this like forking point between, uh, are we going to write from inside the castle um, like Fitzgerald um, or is there going to be something else, like a, a new kind of theoretically more radical literature that comes from the picket lines? I think it's okay to write from inside the castle. I think that's like a powerful place to be. Um, I think that is possibly a controversial opinion, but like a lot of the novels that I think do social satirical work um, and do social work, period, um, are written from within an understanding of that, that power. So I think that'll be an interesting dance to see play out. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure to have you. Thanks for having me. This was fun. 
Thank you. And listeners, uh, don't miss Gold Diggers, a great story for our strange economic moment. Go out and pick up a copy. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This podcast is produced by Andrea Tudhope. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. We have launched a new website. It is awesome. It has our back episodes and videos of our back episodes and all kinds of other cool stuff. And you can find it at fnfpodcast.net. We want to especially alert our readers to the section of the website that reads by topic for educators. There, University of Minnesota student Shashank Murali has, as the title suggests, grouped all of our past episodes into a very cool topic area. So if you're a teacher, you can use our back episodes to teach about climate change, for instance, or race, or gender, or COVID-19, to name just a few of the topics we have there. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app, and please... Go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. You can listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast page is listed under the LitHub Radio tab. We'll post a link to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk, and on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. You can find video of this interview at our own Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel and IGTV channel. We'll put all that stuff in the show notes. We'll be tweeting and posting about it during the week. Happy reading. Happy boom. If we get one.